Second Corinthians chapter number 12. And uh, there was a wife said, honey, I can't get the car started. I think it might be flooded. The husband said, where is it? And she said, in the neighbor's swimming pool. He said, it's flooded. All right. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh. All right. Second Corinthians chapter number 12. Um, if you'll just give me just the next little while here, I uh, just want to bring you something that I hope will be a help. I've had it on my heart for a couple of weeks now, and so I put it down on paper, so I hope that it'll be a help. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. We're going to pick it up in verse number 1. 2 Corinthians 12, 1. Paul said, It is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Such an one will I glory, yet not, excuse me, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Here, Paul, uh, the Bible says that knowledge puffeth up. And God gave Paul some revelation. He gave him some knowledge. And if anybody had the temptation to get puffed up with pride, it could have very well been the Apostle Paul. So Paul says that, there was given unto him a thorn in the flesh. It's called the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that he might, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, there's something about suffering the right way for the Lord Jesus Christ that brings along with it the power of God. There's something about older Christians that have endured things through their lives and they're patient through it and they, they don't get bent out of shape just like that. And Paul said, I would rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says in verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in, in, in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. In verse number 2, Paul says that he knew a man that was called up to heaven. He was called up to the third heaven, the Bible says, or he was called up to paradise in verse 4. And the man that Paul is referring to in the passage, he said, I knew a man in verse number 2 that was in Christ above 14 years ago, and that man is Paul himself. Paul is speaking in the third person and he's referring to himself in this passage. He And he basically says the same thing again in verse number 3 about whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. Now isn't that strange? He couldn't tell whether he was in the body or out of the body? That sounds strange, doesn't it? You ever heard of somebody having something like an out-of-body experience? 
I've heard people talk about those kinds of things. And what it is is they talk about, it's like they're, they're outside of their body looking at their body and their surroundings and things like that. It's some wild stuff that goes on uh, about the details that they give. But sometimes people on drugs will talk about having an out-of-body experience. And what they call that is they call that tripping. You know, at least that's what they used to call it. I don't know what they call it now. Man, last night I was tripping. Well, what they were doing was having an out-of-body experience there. But cults like Wicca claim to have this same thing, an out-of-body experience. Uh, Zen Buddhism also claims to have out-of-body experiences. And what they call that is they call that nirvana. They call it nirvana, an out-of-body experience. Now, when you die, you and I know that our body doesn't go to be in heaven. We know our body goes to the ground, our soul goes to heaven. You'll remember the story in Luke chapter number 16, there was a rich man in Lazarus. And the uh, Lazarus, the Bible says that he died and he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. But the rich man also died and the Bible says he was buried and in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments. You'll notice that that man when he died, the Bible said that he lift up his eyes. So we first of all notice that a soul has eyes, a soul can see. Then we also learn that he says, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water. So we know that a soul has fingers. If a soul has fingers, it has hands. It has hands, has an arm and so forth and so on. So we see that a soul has fingers. He goes on and he says that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So a soul has a tongue. Now, people will say that's an allegory. They say that that's just a, a, a parable. It's a true story that Jesus Christ told of a real man named Lazarus. He gave a real prop, he gave a proper name, a real man's name. But a soul has a tongue. And also we, uh, if we were to go through the passage, we could pick a bunch of these things out, but I just, some of them that I just wrote down. But you also have a, a memory. He said, he said, Father Abraham, send somebody to my five brethren lest they come to this awful place of torment. And, uh, Abraham said, son, remember thy, li- thy lifetime when thou receivest good things and Lazarus evil things. But now he said the things flipped around and now you're receiving evil things. And he said, besides all this, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they had the word of God. They've got just as much of a chance to get saved unless they come to this awful torment as you had and you rejected and now you're in this torment of place. But what we find is he said to the rich man, he said, remember. So you have a mind. Your soul has a mind. In Revelation chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11, there you'll find during the tribulation period that John the Apostle said that he saw some souls under the altar. And he says, I think it's in verse number 11 of that same chapter, he says that white robes were given unto them. So we notice that a soul can wear a robe. So a soul has a a hole where you can put your head and your shoulders can hold it up. Be kind of like Casper the Friendly Ghost, if you will, if you saw it that way. My point is, is what I'm trying to say is that your soul is an invisible shape that fills your physical body. And that's what your soul is while you're on this earth. It fills your physical body. Now, if you were to cut your fingers off, you you wouldn't see it. It's invisible. But have you ever heard somebody that's talked about how maybe they've lost a finger or they've lost a, a hand or an arm, and they're saying, you know, my finger itches. Isn't that an odd thing? I mean, how's your finger itching? You cut your hand off. But you see, there's something to that. I can't quite, I can't quite explain it, but I know there's gotta be something to that. And so, 
Paul's soul was caught up to heaven. He, I believe that 2 Corinthians chapter 12 was the time when Paul was stoned to death and God brought him up to heaven to be with him. Now, he truly had an out-of-body experience and all these other cults that claim to have, a, have an out-of-body experience is only just a counterfeit to the true out-of-body experience that Paul had. Now, God saw the trials, He saw the sufferings that Paul was going through, and God brought him up to heaven to let him hear and possibly see some things that very few people could even understand or have seen. And when Paul came back from heaven, he lived for Jesus Christ with a different attitude. You ever study the life of Paul? Something happened in Paul's life that triggered him to live, if you will, a suicidal life. Something triggered him to live differently before a thing than, or than after a thing than before a thing. And that thing is right here what we're talking about. Paul was caught up to the third heaven, to paradise, and when God sent him back, there was something changed about that old boy. I guess he was trying to get back to that place is what he's trying to do. But you know what made the difference in Paul's life? Paul was no longer looking at things from earthly point of view. He was looking at it from a heavenly point of view. And I got to thinking about that and I thought, you know what, that'd make for some good preaching. I don't know, maybe by somebody, maybe not me, but I'll give it a whirl, you know. But I want to preach a message tonight entitled, From Heaven's Point of View. From Heaven's Point of View. Number one, let's notice that Paul eventually sees things from Heaven's Point of View. You see, God called Paul up to the third heaven and then what God says to Paul after he says, Paul, I want you to take, come up here and I want you to take a look around. I want you to hear some things. I want you to see some things. And then he, and Paul looks around and maybe he's amazed and astonished that his mortal mind could never have comprehended some of the things that he saw on that time that God had brought him up. Can you imagine how hard it must have been not to say anything about that? I mean, God says, okay, Paul, now here's a requirement. When I send you back, I don't want you to write about it. I don't want you to talk about it. I don't want you to tell anybody about it. I want you to keep it all to yourself. Really? But Lord, you don't understand what I just saw. I mean, I got some great revelation here. So how hard it must have been for Paul to keep his mouth closed. But so it begs the question, why did God do that if Paul couldn't tell anybody about it? I'll tell you why. It wasn't for anybody's benefit, but for Paul's benefit. The reason why that God called Paul up to the third heaven, up to paradise, and let him hear things that, that a man is not law, it's not lawful for a man to utter is simply because God wanted to encourage Paul. So God sent Paul back to encourage him. Now, Paul has been in prison. If you will look with me in uh, the previous chapter, chapter number 11 and verse number 24, the Bible says, Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Forty save one. That means forty minus one. That's thirty-nine stripes. Five times Paul bore thirty-nine stripes. Somebody said that the ministry of Paul is just an extension of the sufferings of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ received 40 stripes save one. There's some similarity there. He says in verse 25, Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. I believe that was at Lystra. That's probably what he's referring to in chapter 12. He said, Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day have I been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils... The word perils means dangers. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in 
in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the cares of all the churches. And so Paul had been in some dangerous storms. He had been beaten and he had been around thieves and heathens. He had been around some brethren that were basically wolves in sheep's clothing, around false brethren. He was tired. He got hungry and he thirsted. He was in pain and he was cold and he was naked according to those passages there. And despite all the storms and the troubles and the trials that Paul went through and those turmoils, Paul still even cared for the cares of the churches. So God does something special in Paul's life. He says, Paul, come up here. Let me show you something. I want to encourage you just a little bit. And then he sends him back. You see, there's times when God will do things in our life to encourage you and me as well. Sometimes we just need to understand that we're not looking at it from the right point of view. You see, where we're at right now, we're seeing things from an earthly point of view. But if we could look at it from a heavenly point of view, it might change our attitude just a little bit. And once Paul saw things from heaven's point of view, it changed his heart and it changed his attitude. Paul looked at his trials and he looked at his troubles differently after he came back from heaven than he did prior to going to heaven. Notice he says in verse number 5, he said, I will glory in my infirmities. Are you crazy, Paul? Who glories in their infirmities? Who gets excited about being in troubles and trials? In verse number 9, he says something similar. He said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Again, in verse number 10, he said, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. So many times we only look at the things from one point of view, and a lot of times it's not going to make sense from our point of view. You ever wonder why God does what He does? It's okay to ask God why. There's nothing wrong with that. He said, Jesus said while he was on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's okay to ask God questions. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But, but we gotta learn that maybe sometimes we're not looking at it from heaven's point of view. I was at a gas station one time and I could remember that the, uh, the clerk, uh, somebody had come in and they had prepaid $60 for gas. And uh, so the lady went back out to pump her gas, and she pumped $41.03. And uh, evidently she had filled it up. But then the clerk said, I hope she doesn't get in her car and drive off because she doesn't understand that it doesn't automatically go back to her card. And sure enough, the lady went to her car, hopped in her car, started it up, put it in drive, and she drove off. And she said, well, at least she could have done was filled up. You know, and, and, you know, I got to thinking about that and I thought about those things and the problem the clerk had was she wasn't looking at it from the customer standpoint of view. I mean, you ever got in a hurry before and you just got flustered and it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to? I mean, I imagine that this lady, maybe she was pumping gas and maybe she just simply forgot. Maybe she automatically thought it would go back to the card. Uh, maybe she, maybe the clerk should have said, now, if you don't get $60 in gas, it doesn't go back to your card. You have to come back in if you want the remainder. Maybe that might have been the approach. But she got $41.03 in gas. Sometimes if we'll just stop and think about things, we just might be able to see it from a different point of view. Maybe the, I, I remember the lady had on her plate, she had out-of-state tags. Maybe it was she was in a hurry to get home. Maybe she had two kids in the back seat that were fussing. Some of you know what that's about, don't you? You hop in the car and you're telling them, be quiet now, behave, straighten up. We got to get on the road. We got to get back home. We got a two hour drive. So she just starts the car up without thinking she drives off. But you know what? The clerk wasn't looking at it from a different point of view. She was only looking at it from her point of view. Now, maybe this is the thing. Maybe my point of view is not correct. 
I'm sure that I've been guilty of this more than one time or even care to admit that I've been guilty of, but I hope that along the way that God has grown me and I'm not as guilty of this thing right here, but I try to see things from different points of view. And maybe not always is my point of view the right way. Now, being called up to heaven was a great turning point in Paul's life. Paul now sees life. He now sees things in the service to Jesus Christ in a whole new light. So Paul comes back from heaven and he hits the ground running. Why? Because now Paul sees things from heaven's point of view. That's good right there. I like that. Because you know what? That shows me that I'm flesh and I might not always be able to see it from the way God sees it. Maybe God doesn't show it to me. Maybe God doesn't have to show it to me. You know, sometimes it's just simply about walking by faith and not by sight. Sometimes it's just trusting in God when it doesn't look like it's right, when it doesn't look like it's fair, when it doesn't look like it's going my way. It's saying, God, I'm going to trust you because I know I can't fully see it from heaven's point of view. But then we also, number two, we notice that Job eventually sees things from heaven's point of view. If you'll come to Job chapter number three. Job chapter number three. Job eventually sees it from heaven's point of view. Job chapter number three. Job loses almost everything that he has. As you read the book of Job, he lost cattle, he lost his servants, he lost his children. He's sitting there in ashes with his face in his hands and he's probably cried so much that he can't cry anymore. You ever been there? You ever cried so much you can't cry anymore? It's just dry tears, so to speak. In Job chapter number three, in verse number one, the Bible said, after this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. So we see that Job is talking about himself. And Job is looking at this storm. He's looking at his life and his problems from his point of view. And he's, he's basically cursing the day that he was born. He says in verse 4, Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above, neither let the light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Man, I mean, he's just downing the day that he was born. Verse 6 says, As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not even be a, let it not even be one day out of 364 or 65 days. He said, Let it not come into the number of the months. Lo, let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it that curse the day who are ready to raise up their morning. Let the stars of the twilight thereof be dark. Let it look for light but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day because it shut not up the doors of my mother's womb. That's rough talk, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's, he's cursing the day that his mother's womb opened up and birthed him into this world. He said, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. He said, why died I not from the womb? Think about that. If you've had a life of trouble and sorrows and torment and, and so forth and so on, here's Job there. He's sitting down looking from his point of view and he's wondering why his mother didn't miscarry him. That's what he's saying there. He said, why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why wasn't I stillborn? That's what he's saying. He said, why did the knees prevent me or why the breasts that I should suck? For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept then had I been at rest. I mean, Job is cursing the day that he had been born. He's looking at it from his point of view. And you even understanding this thing here, it's early in Job's storm of his life. And he doesn't see God in any of this. He doesn't see the Lord working or moving, let alone even from heaven's point of view. 
He can't see that. He's in a, he's in a, he's blinded by his circumstances and the storm is so, the clouds are so dark that he can't see. Hey, have you ever been there before? If you've never been there before, you buckle up because life will bring those times along its way. We notice in Job chapter 2 and verse number 9, the Bible says, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. And so Job's wife doesn't even understand it. Job can't find anybody around him that understands what he's going through. It appears that his wife is so bitter and that she's so angry that she tells her husband to curse God and possibly she's telling him to commit suicide. Just curse God and die, Job. You know that's not heaven's point of view. See, Job can't find comfort in his wife and his family. And Job doesn't find any comfort with his friends either. If you will, come to uh, chapter number 5. His friends claim that it's his fault for why he's suffering. Look at Job chapter number 5 and verse number 1. I'm not going to bring all these out. I'm just going to bring a few of them out. But notice in Job chapter 5 and verse number 1, you've got Eliphaz, one of his friends. It says in verse 1, he says, Call now if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints wilt thou turn? Spoken like a good Catholic, isn't it? I mean, you you could make the argument that Eliphaz was a Catholic because he said, okay, what saint are you going to pray to? (laughs) What saint are you going to turn to? Eliphaz tells him to call out to one of the saints. Look at verse number 2. For wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. Here's Job down in his ashes, down in his luck, down in his life with the storms raging about him. He's lost his children. His wife has lost her mind and went off her rocker. And here's Job getting this kind of advice from his friends. And he turns around and insults him by calling him a fool in verse number 3. I mean, then notice what he said, verse 2 and 3. Then in verse number 3, he says, I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. Job says that his habitation was cursed. He says his habitation was cursed. Then he really smacks Job in the face when he says this is the problem of the reason why his children is not safe. Look at verse 4. His children are far from safety. He smacks Job in the face by saying, Job, the reason why you are where you are and the reason why your children died is because you are you raised your kids in a cursed habitation. It's your fault, Job, that your kids, uh, I guess five kids are laid dead in the grave. It's your fault that you've lost everything. Just smack. He can't find any comfort. His friend comes along, Eliphaz, and is looking at it from Eliphaz's point of view. He's looking at it from the wrong point of view. Eliphaz is brutal to Job with very little sympathy to offer. Eliphaz says so many things. Now, Eliphaz says some really great things. If you read some of the things that he says, he says some great things, but his problem is he's misreading Job's situation. He's looking at it from the wrong point of view. He's saying things that don't fit Job. He's saying things that aren't Job's situation. And he's assuming that Job is in this predicament because of something that Job has done. We'll find out later on that that's not the case. But you know what we ought to do? We ought to be careful when discerning other people's circumstances. 
You ought to be careful about that. Unless you've walked a mile in a man's shoes, as they say, you better be careful. And so when it, when they come to you, and they, you just got to be careful when they come to you. If they themselves don't understand the details, and they can't fully understand and explain it to you, then you want to be careful not to make false judgments about that thing. Because what you find is Eliphaz, the Temanite here, in chapter number 5, he makes some false accusations. There's Job sitting there trying to figure all these things out. And along comes one of his friends and just starts throwing out these accusations that really do not fit Job or comfort Job. Hey, listen, when I'm hurting, when I'm hurting, I don't need your judgmentalness. I don't need you to be judgmental. I need your compassion. I need your kindness, your sympathy. I need need your love. That's what I need. I need help. You know, at the time that a child does wrong and he gets hurt, probably when he gets hurt, it's not the time to say, I told you if you do that, you'd get hurt. How many times does parents do that? You know, that's not the time. They don't need it right then and there. They're hurting. They need your love, your care. Fix the boo-boo. Take away the pain. Then you can teach them that what they did was wrong. But that's not the right time to do it. And that's the same way in the Christian life. We have to be careful that we're not judgmental to others and say, well, I knew it was just only a matter of time. Yeah, because you know it all. Yeah, that's right. I believe we all have some know-it-all friends, don't we? Notice Job's second friend, Bildad. He was like the Pharisee and he was like the modern day hypocrites of today. Come to chapter number 8. We're talking about from heaven's point of view. I don't think Eliphaz understood what it was like from heaven's point of view by reading his statements. But then here comes another friend, Job's second friend, and his name is Bildad. Look at chapter 8 and verse number uh, verse number 6. He said, if thou wert pure and upright, if... Well, there's a smack in his face, isn't it? Well, Job, you know the reason why you're where you're at is because you're not pure and you're not upright. But we know that's a false accusation because what does God say about Job in Job chapter number 1 and verse number 1? There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job and that man was perfect and upright. You see, these guys right here are misreading Job. They're misreading his situation. They don't understand Job's circumstances. So he comes along and says, Well, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. And he says, Though thy beginning was small, yet the latter end should be greatly increased. Now he was right about that as we get to the end of the book of Job. But what we find out here in his second friend right here, Bildad comes along and you can just see his self-righteous attitude that comes through. Do you know anybody that has a self-righteous attitude? You don't even really want to get advice from them because they're looking at it from their point of view and you're going to get a self-righteous kind of response is what you're going to get. So this is like the, some preachers of today, and this is like some Christians of the day. If you don't live like they do, you don't talk like they do, and you don't dress like they do, and you don't walk and spit white and, and talk bright and all that stuff, then you're not one of them. And if you don't keep their standards, then you're dirty and you're unclean. Now that's the modern day crowd, but you know what they are? They're a bunch of hypocrites is what they are. If you don't like to, if you don't live like they do, then you're not right with God, they'll say. And without seeing it, they themselves make themselves God. Listen, why didn't you men wear a tie tonight? Shame on you. That's horrible. How about you ladies? You come in here with pants on. Shame on you to come into the house of God and wear dress pants. Surely God is looking shamefully down upon you. You see, you've got to be careful about pushing those. Where's that at in the Bible? Book, chapter, and verse, please. Now listen, I'm of the old mentality. I think a woman should wear a dress. I like that. I, I like my wife wearing a dress. I really do. 
I like that. There's something to me as a husband that's appealing to that. But what it should be is it should hide a woman's figure from other men is what it does. Now, if the dress kind of, you know, emphasizes the figure, then you got a problem, right? Because the Bible does say that women are to dress what? Modestly. See that? That's where it comes in. Modestly. I've seen some pants outfits that are much more modest than dress outfits. When you come into church and you're wearing a dress and you got to keep tugging at it, that's wrong, ladies. <laughs> Let me just say that. If you're a child of God and you come to church and you got to constantly tug at your dress to bring it down to the knees, you might want to consider if that's right or wrong. It's a shame in some churches when the choir is going up, the people have got to look down. <laughs> you know, one preacher said one time, where Job had skin trouble, Job's friends had heart and mouth disease. <laughs> I say amen to that. Because they had no idea what Job was going through. They were looking at the outward circumstances, but they didn't know the full story of what's going on in Job's life. So we find that Job's second friend comes along with this pharisaical attitude, this hypocritical attitude, and if we're not careful, our own self-righteousness will not allow us to discern the situation. And what will happen is in turn, we'll hurt the ones that we seek to try to help because we're looking at it through the lens of self-righteousness. Then we notice Job's third friend, Zophar. Come to chapter 11. Job chapter number 11, look at verse number 1. Here's Zophar. Then answered Zophar, the Namathite, and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed. He just called, in verse number 3, he called Job a liar. He called Job a liar. He said, should thy lies make men hold their peace? Who died and made this guy God? Who died and allowed this guy to sit on the throne of God over Job's life? Let me just bring it down to us. Who died and left them in charge and on the throne over our lives? Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne, is He not? He's the one that controls us. He's the one that guides us. And He's the one that will straighten us out. I'll tell you what, He'll do a much better job at it than anybody else will, won't He? Job's third friend, Zophar, accuses Job of being a liar, but what did Job lie about? You find in Job chapter 7 and verse number 20 that Job admitted and he said, I have sinned. In Job 9 verses 1 through 10, Job exalts the greatness of his maker. In Job chapter 9 and verse number 2, Job admits that he cannot justify himself before God. In Job chapter 9 and verse 15 through 21, Job admits his ignorance and to make supplication to his judge. And in Job chapter 10 and verses 8 through 13, Job admits and exalts God as His Creator. Sometimes when someone doesn't understand your situation, they resort to false accusations that are just simply flat out wrong. And the very thing that Job's friends were accusing Job of, they were guilty of. Isn't that often the case? The things that people accuse you of, they're actually the ones that are guilty of that very thing? Now, here's the bigger picture. I'm getting ready to come to a close. Come to Job chapter number 1. Job chapter number 1. We're talking from heaven's point of view tonight. Now let's look at this thing from heaven's point of view. In Job chapter number 1, look at verse number 6. The Bible said, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Notice where this has taken place. 
before the throne. It's taken place before the Lord up in heaven. Verse 7, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? The devil didn't say, Hey God, how about this, how about this Job guy? Why don't you just remove that hedge and let me see what I, how much I can hurt him and he'll curse you to your face. Who was Job's attacker? Was it God or was it Satan? In the passage here, we see that Job's attacker was God. He said in verse number, now we know that God allowed Satan to do it, but God was the one that said, hast thou considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth? Do you know that if you're not careful, when you walk with the Lord, you have to walk so close with God because if you don't, you don't know whether it's the devil moving in your life or whether it's God moving in your life. And you'll be wondering, is this thing the will of God or not? That's why you need to stay in God's will because they work so closely. And we see that here in Job's life. And he says that there in verse number 8 is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth now... Excuse me, put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And so we see here that the bigger picture is is even Job's friends couldn't see this. Uh, Job couldn't even see this. There was something going on in heaven that Job and his friends had no earthly idea what was going on. Job's down here on earth and he's wondering why this, why that. He's questioning God. And he goes on and on and on about some accusations and some things. And his friends come along and says, Job, well, the reason why you're in this situation is because it's your fault. But now we get a glimpse of heaven's point of view and it wasn't Job's fault. Simply God wanted to open the door up for Satan in Job's life. You want to know why God did that? So God could get the glory. Sometimes in our lives we're going to go through things just simply so God can get the glory. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it's not about uh, some of this other stuff. It's about God getting the glory. Now, because you and I have a Bible, we can see a conversation going on in heaven that Job can't. We can see God and Satan going back and forth in this thing. They even do it again in chapter number 2, verses 1 through 6, which we won't read. But uh, he opens up the door to that thing right there. And in verse number 8, you find Job is taking pieces of glass and he's scraping the sore boils off of him. Because now Satan can touch his body and his body is cursed. Job and his friends were on the earth trying to figure out the reason for Job's storm. But in heaven there's a totally different point of view that's going on. I want to close out here. If you'll come to chapter 42, the book of Job, while you're turning to chapter 42, the book of Job is a type of the tribulation period. You'll read about the tribulation period that those saints in the tribulation are going to have to have patience. You ever heard of the patience of Job? You'll notice that Job has 42 chapters. The book of tribulation, excuse me, the book of, uh, the tribulation period has 42 months or three and a half years. All right, in Job chapter 42, watch this here, verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the things that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. 
For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the things which is right, like my servant Job. See how Job was the one that was right all along? So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuahite and Zophar the Namathite went and did according as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord also accepted Job. Here it is. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Isn't that a strange statement? When did the Lord turn the captivity of Job? When he began to pray for his friends. These friends who were wrong. These friends that had done him harm, had hurt his feelings and done wrong. And you know, the Bible says that the Lord had turned his captivity when he began to pray for his friends. Notice what the last part says. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So we see the latter end of Job is better than the beginning. And that's what God can do for you and me. Now, I don't know all your struggles tonight. I, I don't know what you're going through. I know God does. I know from heaven's point of view, the Father understands completely what you're going through. I know my struggles. I know what I face. I know my problems. I know that our storms are not always the same. I know our storms individually are different. From person to person, storms are different. Even from family to family, storms are different. They vary from one to another. And as much as I'd like to tell you that it would, it's going to get easier, I can't do that. I'm not God. I can tell you this though, I can tell you that one day it will end. I can tell you that much. I can't tell you when it'll end, but I can tell you it will get better. Somebody once said, you are either in a storm, you just came out of one, or you're getting ready to go into a storm. And how true that is. If you're not in a storm right now, just buckle your seatbelt because you're getting ready to go into one. That is so true. Life is full of storms, isn't it? Sometimes our lives are full of storms, maybe a tropical storm. We kind of gotten used to those and we can handle those kind of storms in our lives. But then there's those uh, category five storms that come along and they turn your world upside down. And I can't tell you when that storm will pass by or how long it'll last. But I do know this, with every category five storm that's hit the shores of America, I know that eventually it gets downgraded. And many times it goes off out to sea and where it disappears. And I know in our lives... We have storms and hurricanes, so to speak, spiritually, but one of, but at some point they will get downgraded and eventually they will go out to sea. I know that as Christians, things in our life doesn't just happen haphazardly. I know you may not understand it right now. I may not understand it right now. But God is working in the lives of all believers to make us more like the perfect product, the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe on one day the Lord will tell us why that we went through what we went through. And maybe He doesn't. Again, like I said before, He doesn't have to tell us why we go through what we do. And if, if He doesn't, that's okay. But right now where you sit, I assure you that the storm in your life has great purpose from heaven's point of view.